Have you heard what's happening in Calgary, Canada? Home to some of the world's best researchers and innovators in life sciences, Calgary is advancing healthcare solutions to solve global challenges. Calgary's dedication to the life sciences sector is evident in its labs, hospitals, schools, and the minds of its people. With its top institutions producing internationally recognized research and more than 110 life science companies backed by a highly skilled pool of talent, the life sciences sector is accelerating innovation in Calgary. If you're a bright mind or a bright company, Calgary is just the place for you. Take a closer look at calgarylifesciences.com. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. HIV has fallen out of the headlines, the virus continues to represent a significant public health threat. American Gene Technologies is developing experimental cell therapy that it says is potentially curative for HIV. We spoke to Jeff Galvin, CEO and founder of American Gene Technologies, about the state of HIV, the company's experimental cell therapy for it, and why the one-time treatment has the potential to free patients from chronic use of antiviral therapies. Jeff, thanks for joining us. Oh, my pleasure to be here, Danny. Thank you for having me. We're going to talk about HIV, American Gene Technologies, and the company's potentially curative cell therapy for HIV. I think with HIV being out of the headlines and the success of antiretroviral therapies, that it's easy to forget about the extent and significance of HIV. Where are we with regards to the disease and how much of a public health issue does it represent today? So I think a lot of people would be surprised to hear that HIV is still at epidemic levels in the world. So about uh, somewhere between 35 and 50,000 people a year die of it in the United States and new infections. So there's a fairly stable pool of HIV-infected individuals in the United States, which is at about 1.2 million people. And only a third of them are on uh, antiretroviral therapy that is controlling their viremia at levels where they're non-infectious. So two-thirds of those folks are contagious uh, you generally don't meet them. They're in, you know, sort of subcultures where you'd kind of know if HIV was around, infectious HIV. But the reality is, is that they are passing it on. And it is a major health problem in the United States and globally, where third, nearly 38 million people have HIV and something somewhere over a million people died last year uh, from HIV. So, uh, it's a huge global health problem, but you're right, it's fallen out of the headlines, and a lot of that is because there hasn't been much progress 
beyond just increasing the number of people that are on treatment and slowing down the epidemic that way. Uh, and uh, I think the uh, the the entire um, problem is being managed in a uh, you know sort of a standard way that you deal with these viral outbreaks, very similar to what you see as part of the strategy in COVID. Um, but the underlying problem is huge, and just to put that fifty thousand new infections per year. Uh, in perspective for you, uh, at the, p- the peak of the polio epidemic, it was only 60,000 people a year. So this is truly an epidemic. And every time a new, imper- a new person gets infected, society will end up bearing about a $3 million cost over the remainder of their life that wouldn't have been there if they weren't HIV positive. So this thing is a huge problem and an acute need. Uh, and an important uh, issue that is waiting for a solution. Well, assuming someone is getting the antiretroviral therapy they need, how effective is this at controlling the condition? And what's the consequence of long-term use of these therapies? Uh, That's a perfect question. I mean, the, so first of all, this is also very important for people to understand is that when somebody who's HIV positive takes their antiretroviral therapy reliably, uh, you know, almost religiously, in other words, same time each day and not missing any pills, uh, they are com- they are completely protected from AIDS and they cannot transmit the virus. They are literally out of the infectious population. And that's critically important in terms of managing the epidemic. But the, the other part of your question is also uh, the, the, the really the overriding issue for those folks is it's very painful to be on the daily antiretrovirals or even some of these longer lasting antiretrovirals that are coming out because they are mild chemotherapeutics. And you probably know chemotherapeutics from cancer therapy where you lose your hair while you're treating your cancer. They're not that powerful, but they're basically chemicals that persist in your bloodstream that prevent the virus from moving from cell to cell. And these chemicals have side effects. And the short-term side effects lower the quality of life for HIV-positive individuals that are under treatment immediately. They get fatigue, diarrhea, and nausea every day. Those are common uh, side effects. But long-term, they get early aging, bone density issues, osteoporosis, brittle bones, liver, kidney, heart disease, and extra cancers. And this is a surprising thing that not a lot of people have in their calculus when they think about the HIV problem is that, sure, HIV medication is expensive, twenty to $30,000 a year to suppress the virus in insured markets. So in, like in the United States, HIV positive people, uh, their insurance companies are paying twenty to $30,000 a year for them to take suppressive therapy. Uh, but the side effects of the suppressive therapy can cost the insurance companies between fifty and $80,000 a year. So, uh, you know, once again, uh, it really is a economic problem that has much broader implications than just the cost of the medication for these patients. And it is lowering their quality of life. It is causing them to be in and out of the doctors all the time. 
that's costing the healthcare system a tremendous amount of money. And it's difficult on these people because they feel bad all the time and they are having, you know, things that need to be treated all the time. And doctors aren't that easy to find because the stigma surrounding HIV is tremendous, even in amongst health professionals, you know, getting a dentist when you're HIV positive is harder than getting a dentist when you're not HIV positive, because it's just scary. It's just naturally scary. Even though if the person's well controlled on antiretrovirals and in normal, you know, dental procedures, there's no danger to the dentist, but it, it, you know, it, it, you, you understand that HIV is just a scary, scary thing where there's a lot of misinformation or a lot of misunderstanding around it. And so these folks have hard lives when it comes to just their general health care. And then there is the psychological burden of the isolation of having something that, you know, people feel that they need to keep a secret. Uh, you know, maybe uh, even your closest friends, uh, you know, might look at you differently if you were forced to or if you chose to tell them that you were HIV positive, they may not be sophisticated enough to understand that HIV positive people that are on antiretrovirals have uh, caused absolutely no danger to the people around them. And that approximately one in 300 adults in the United States is HIV positive. So, you know, it's all around us. Uh, but, you know, it gets really personal and really scary when people have to deal with it directly. And so there is this, this social stigma and the isolation and the pain of being different and the psychological burden. Um, when I talk to HIV positive people, they tell me that that's even worse than the physical pain. Let's talk about how HIV works and, and how the virus hijacks cells to replicate itself. Walk us through that. Uh, HIV is like many other viruses and viruses have been in the news quite a bit with COVID, right? They get into your body and then they find a cell to attach to, usually through some receptor that's on that cell. And by binding with that cell, they're able to drop a genetic construct, some DNA or RNA into the cell that will hijack that cell in a way that is unhealthy to the cell. Now, uh, usually what most viruses do is they put in DNA into the cell that just replicates that same virus, and that virus will gradually replicate and spread around the rest of the body. Now, HIV has some unique qualities uh, as a virus. Uh, one is that when it attaches to a cell and it drops this DNA or RNA into it, the, that genetic construct uh, does something called integrating. Integrating means that it makes a copy of itself and it puts it right in the DNA of that cell, which means that that cell now has an updated version of DNA that includes the HIV genome, the instructions for making more HIV. And it can lie dormant in that cell or it can just slowly produce virons, uh, you know, on and off for the rest of the life of that cell. And so what happens is, is that it's not a virus that, you know, is, is really overt in your body that blows up really quickly and is either going to kill you or your immune system is going to get on top of it. No, it slowly takes over uh, all of its target cells in the body. And the consequence of it moving slowly between all the different immune cells in your body is eventually it wipes out different types of immune cells. And as a result, you're missing immunity to common viruses out, like, out there like the cold or the flu. Well, when you can't fight a common virus, 
it can rip through your body in a way where it can kill you very, very quickly. So the flu without ordinary flu immune protection will kill you, you know, within weeks with an incurable pneumonia or something else, uh, sort of like the COVID deaths that we saw. Uh, this is the consequence of when your body can't get on top of a relatively ordinary virus that spreads quickly. So, so as a virus, it's pretty much like a normal virus, like every other virus that you could get, like a cold or a, a flu or uh, COVID or whatever. But it, it has this very slow-moving nature, and it, um, and it can hide in the body, and it can hide in the cells for, uh, for a long periods of time uh, and take m- many, many years to do its work. Okay, so that's how HIV gets into the body, the same as any other virus. Now, another unique property of HIV is that it likes to attach to receptors called CD4 and CCR5. It sounds very technical, but these are two receptors that are common on your immune cells. So the target of HIV, the place that it it's looking for to attach, uh, is immune cells. So when it gets into the bloodstream, it finds an immune cell, attaches to it, and installs the DNA, and then it uses that uh, cell as a factory to produce more virons to go and infect more cells. Um, and so the cells that are supposed to protect you from HIV, guess what they are? Immune cells. So when your normal immune cells run over to the HIV viron to kill it, instead they get infected. So the sentinel T cells in your body that were supposed to protect you from this virus are the target of the virus and they become the beachhead of the virus, of the virus because the that virus can actually infect the cell before the faster than the cell can kill the virus. So that's why you have no, you know, most people have no protection from HIV and a small amount of it getting into the bloodstream has approximately a 10% chance of permanently infecting that person with HIV. And then there's no way to fight it after that. HIV will sweep through the HIV-specific T cells in your body very, very quickly. And after about 90 days, you have zero HIV protection. And then HIV is free to take its time to destroy the rest of your immune system and give you AIDS. So that's how HIV gets into the body. And those you know, differences are absolutely critical in terms of making it hard to treat, but also giving us an approach uh, to potentially curing this in the future. There was a fair bit of excitement uh, about a decade or so ago with the so-called Berlin patient that pointed a way to a potential cure for HIV. What happened? Well, uh, that was a turning point in the HIV cure arc. And what had been discovered in Africa was that some um, sex workers were not getting HIV, even though they were in areas that had very high levels of HIV infection. And scientists in that area, uh, I believe it was in Kenya, um, studied the blood of those people that weren't getting infected, and they realized, hey, they have a slightly different-looking immune cell than most people, and it's missing that receptor I mentioned to you, CCR5, the, 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 the real name for CCR5 is chemokine receptor number five. So it turned out that these people had a, a rare genetic mutation 
where their T-cells still worked fine, but they were missing sort of a door handle that HIV needed to get into the cell. And once HIV couldn't get into the cell, guess what? The cell could do its normal job killing HIV. And so your these HIV T-cells in these people that had the rare genetic mutation could actually uh, rid the body of HIV the same way the rest of your immune cells rid the body of a cold or the flu or whatever, because the T-cells themselves stayed uninfected when they met the HIV viron. Okay, so that was the discovery that if you're born with this genetic mutation, uh, you have a very high resistance to getting HIV. Um, And so a, a doctor in Berlin ended up getting a patient who had uh, HIV and also an acute leukemia. Uh, in other words, the leukemia was in term, late stage terminal, terminal uh, condition. So this patient was going to die. And the only hope for somebody in that condition is a bone marrow transplant. So a bone marrow transplant, essentially, they irradiate the body of the patient and they kill that person's entire immune system, including their bone marrow, where the immune cells are born from in your body. And then they get donor marrow from a compatible donor and they put that in the bone. And if it regrows fast enough before the patient dies from some infection, which is a common way to die when you're getting a bone marrow transplant, is that for some period of time, you have zero immune system. <laughs> a little bit of bacteria or any virus will kill you, right? But if they get new bone marrow in, in you and it grows, it, it engrafts and it grows, that patient will regrow the immune system of the donor, okay? Now, of course, the immune system of the donor doesn't have the cancer. So that's how we cure the cancer. But the Berlin doctor said, what if we get a donor who is CCR5 negative, who's missing chemokine receptor number five, who has that rare mutation where this new immune system will be highly resistant to HIV? How will that affect this person's HIV status? Well, long story short, he was functionally cured. He went off his antiretrovirals. He didn't have to take suppressive therapy. He didn't have to get all the side effects of the suppressive therapy. And his immune system was able to suppress the virus naturally. So by transferring a CCR5 negative immune system from one donor to an HIV-infected patient, that HIV-infected patient was essentially cured. Functional cure means equivalent to cure. Didn't need to take any medicine. He couldn't get AIDS and he couldn't infect anybody else. So, uh, and as a matter of fact, he was immune to recontracting HIV, at least the common forms of HIV that need CCR5 to get into the cell. So uh, that was an amazing moment where they showed that that was the key aspect and that it could have a curative benefit even after you're HIV infected. Okay, fast forward, they did that experiment numerous more times. They had a lot of patients die from the bone marrow transplant about six out of 10 people that are in that uh, state of, you know, having that level of cancer burden in their body in that weekend. And then they, the trauma of a bone marrow transplant, you know, nearly 60% of them will die from the bone marrow transplant. So that's not a practical way to treat HIV, but um, they were able to do the experiment 
uh, because they got, you know, plenty of HIV positive people uh, that had uh, acute leukemias and they could do the experiment again. And, and what they found is that it works provided that the only strain of HIV that the person has in their body is what's called R5 strain. In other words, it's a particular strain of HIV, which is the most common one that needs that CCR5 in order to attach to an immune cell. So the two discoveries, they sort of revalidated the idea that if you're CCR5 negative, you're immune to HIV, provided that it's the R5 strain and that some people are co-infected with what's called a CXCR4 strain. So it uses a different receptor to get into the cells and, and being CCR5 negative doesn't protect you from that. So that was the Berlin patient was the start of a number of different bone marrow transplants that proved and reproved that theory. And so that's, that's that pivotal moment, but the, the arc goes on from there. You know, it was sort of a, um, well, there were numerous people that thought of this, including myself <laughs> at AGT that, well, if, you know, being CCR5 negative makes you functionally cured from HIV, can't we use gene therapy to make you CCR5 negative instead of using bone marrow transplants? And what that means is, can't we repurpose viruses to carry instructions into your immune cells that would turn off CCR5? That's what gene therapy is, is we can re-regulate your DNA by delivering things by viruses. We can hollow out deadly viruses or viruses that are carrying uh, bad DNA that hijacks your cells in a negative manner, you know, like COVID, like HIV, like uh, uh, adeno-associated viruses, like colds, flus, all those things can now be cracked open. We can scoop out the bad code and we can use the shell of that virus to deliver good code that improves your health instead and that re-regulates your gene, your genes to change the cell in a beneficial way. That's what gene therapy is all about. So we can go ahead and design a construct that will shut off your CCR5 and we can give it to anybody. So that was an experiment done by Sangamo and one in 10 of their patients went, uh, got a functional cure. So they, uh, it wasn't a high enough number of patients and it was a very, very expensive uh, process. So they weren't uh, able to commercialize it, but it further proved the point that not all of your cells need to be CCR5 negative, just enough of your cells need to be CCR5 negative in your immune system for you to be able to get on top of and control HIV and not need antiretrovirals anymore. So I gave you kind of a really extended answer to the Berlin patient, but that was a pivotal moment when they were able to experimentally prove that uh, the relationship between that CCR5 receptor and becoming immune to HIV. Maybe we could close the loop. What is your lead experimental therapy, AGT-103T, and how does it work? Well, it works basically like the Singamo study did, except for it has some very, very big advantages. So, um, Singamo proved that in one in 10 of their patients, they could get enough immune cells that were immune to HIV that they were getting, um, you know, they were getting a, a, a durable remission or a uh, suppression of the HIV for a period of time. 
And um, it was about $500,000 worth of reagents. So it probably would have been a million to $2 million treatment, um, but it only worked in one in 10 cases. So you'd have to treat 10 patients to get one of them in durable remission. So you could see that this wouldn't be practical uh, as a commercial product. So <clears throat> the, the reason that the reliability was low is that they were using a technique to knock out CCR5 that isn't all that reliable because each one of your cells has two copies of the CCR5 gene. So you have to cut out both copies with, with the method that they were using, which is called zinc finger nuclease clipping. It's like a early form of CRISPR where you can tell uh, this molecule to find this sequence in the DNA and cut it. Um, and you may have heard of CRISPR. In, in CRISPR, not only can you tell a CRISPR molecule to cut something, but you can tell that CRISPR molecule to replace it with something else. It's like a universal find and replace it. It doesn't work as, as well as it sounds, so CRISPR's not quite, quite there yet, uh, you know, in the clinic. But, but the basic idea of being able to get in there and cut uh, the, the um, actual gene out of the DNA um, existed with zinc-fingered nuclease, and you could cut about 10, you could put enough of this reagent into a pool of T-cells that you could get about one-tenth of the cells uh, have their uh, CCR5 gene cut at least once, okay, because you have two of the genes. So about 10% of the cells would, have, would get one of the genes destroyed. Well, it turned out that if they had the other, uh, the other gene, the other allele, was still intact, they were making enough CCR5 where they didn't get the benefit uh, of being immune to HIV. So um, they tr retried the experiment with people that were already mi missing half of their CCR5. And that's when they showed that it was about one in 10 patients. Uh, that was the reliability of, of this method of cutting out CCR5, that in one in 10 patients, it would work. So we used a different method to do what's called knocking out CCR5. So instead of trying to cut it out of the genome, we put something else in there that creates an interrupting antisense strand. It all sounds very technical, but it produces something in the cell that turns off the message from those genes and it turns off both genes simultaneously. So we don't have to cut out two things in a cell to get rid of CCR5. We only have to install one thing and it gets rid of both sources of CCR5. And so what we found is that instead of 10% of the cells getting the modification, we get 90% of the cells using that method. Then we added in some other what are called antisense strands, so these knockouts, against conserved regions of HIV. So we were able to make a protection that doesn't just work on these common R5 strains, but it works on CXC or R4 strains and all known strains of HIV. So even strains that can get into the cell uh, in, um, in T cells that are missing their CCR5, so the virus can get in, we were able to put two more barriers of protection that prevent that uh, virus from installing itself and producing new virons. So we could protect the cell three ways against a much broader set of HIV. And then the final thing was, is we were producing 2,000 times the number of these immune cells that fight HIV that could not be infected by HIV because they were protected as the best case in the Syngamo study. So we raised the 
essentially the potency of this by a factor of 2000 while dropping the cost by a factor of 10. So it became a practical solution to actually put in a protection against HIV that is not only uh, a potency level that's likely to surpass what's necessary for functional cure, but it works on all patients, regardless of whether they have one CCR5 gene broken already, and it has protection against um, multiple strains of HIV. So it's a giant leap on the Syngamo experiment that we hope and that we think the numbers support some optimism uh, about that this should cross the threshold of functional cure for most of, possibly even all the patients that get treated. Not one in 10, but you know maybe nearly 100%. Well, walk me through the, the process of treating a patient and how you prepare the cells. So it's a one and done treatment. So you only have to be treated once for permanent immunity to HIV. And it, before you can be treated, the patient must go on antiretrovirals long enough for their immune system to recover because the initial HIV infection will wipe out all of their HIV T cells. But once they're on antiretroviral therapy, suppressing the virus, their normal immune system comes back. That's why they don't get AIDS. They don't get uh, problems fighting colds or flus. They also get HIV T cells back. At that point, we do a blood draw. It's called a leukapheresis, which is a filtration of leukocytes, so white blood cells, out of the blood. We take about 300 to 400 milliliters of blood. It's an outpatient uh, procedure. It takes a few hours. Uh, And then that blood is put into an automated cell processor that carries out a bunch of steps on it and converts it into a billion HIV-specific CD4-positive helper T-cells, the conductor of the immune orchestra, that are immune to HIV, that can then be infused back into the patient, still an outpatient procedure. And then once they engraft, so a few weeks later, uh, that patient should be able to throw away their antiretrovirals and live a normal life without without any fear of HIV and without any need for HIV treatment. And the steps in the automated cell processor are fairly straightforward. Uh, The first thing we do is we stimulate those HIV T cells with what's called a peptide mix so that it activates them and proliferates them in the mix. So now the blood that we drew from this patient has a slightly higher percentage of HIV-specific T cells than it would normally have. Then we do a depletion protocol to get rid of all the non-HIV T cells because The only T cells you need to fight HIV are HIV specific T cells. Every T cell in your body has got an antigen receptor that makes it specific to a disease. So we only care about the ones that are gonna hunt and kill HIV. And we don't wanna spend a lot of money on reagents protecting T cells that don't matter. So we deplete them out. Then we put in a lentivirus. A lentivirus is actually hollowed out HIV. So we've scooped out AIDS out of the HIV myron. So it's an empty shell, an empty stealth bomber that can deliver anything. And we're using it to deliver the cure for HIV, which is a, uh, a what's called a microRNA scaffolded uh, shRNA cluster. Okay, very technical again. But what it is, is it's a genetic construct that will go ahead and install itself in the cell. And it will produce these interrupting antisense strands that shut off CCR5. So it 
protects the membrane of the cell by removing the door handle and then also putting in other barriers of protection in case anything gets past the membrane and tries to get into the DNA. It has two other shRNAs that turn into interrupting uh, RNA strands, antisense strands that further protect the cell. And we aren't, we're only using about $35,000 worth of vector versus $500,000 worth of vector in the Singamo experiment. They got to 10% of the cells and 90% of the cells in this process end up being permanently immune to HIV. Then we culture them up, still in this automated machine. The whole thing takes about 11 days from start to finish in the machine. We culture them up to a billion copies of those key HIV fighting T cells that are immune. And then it's ready to be reinfused. There is a uh, quality check uh, called a release criteria. Uh, and in the clinical trial, this is very extensive. It takes 70 days of testing of the materials to make sure that it's pure uh, and uncontaminated. Uh, but once that's done, we can reinfuse those cells into that uh, patient. And um, the expectation is that they will be like the Berlin patient, that they will have the ability to control HIV naturally and they won't need antiretrovirals any longer. AGT is in the midst of an early stage study of the therapy. What's known about it from work that's been done to date? A lot. So um, the where we are in the clinical trial is we just infused our fifth patient so there are now five people walking around with a dose of HIV-fighting T cells that are immune to HIV that we think is sufficient to functionally cure them. However, we're only doing blood tests right now to see if those cells are in there and healthy and working. We haven't done sort of the gold standard test yet, which is to have those people stop their antiretroviral therapy and see what happens. Because that's exactly what happened in the Berlin study, is that they didn't know it worked until they realized that this patient is off their antiretrovirals and their virus is not rebounding. Rebounding means that, you know, the small amount of virus that's in their body isn't increasing up to levels where it's threatening their health again. So that is the kind of control that we're expecting to see in these folks. And we're going to uh, allow these people to re-enroll in a treatment withdrawal study that we think will begin in February. We're in the process of revising the protocol now and getting approval from all of the regulatory bodies, including uh, informing the FDA of our intent to allow these people to try stopping their antiretrovirals to see how well this works. But in the meantime, we already have blood data that shows that the cells are in there and healthy. And we have preclinical data that shows that when they're healthy, in models of humans, in blood models, which are very close approximations of a human bloodstream, that it, is, it, it has the ability to suppress HIV sufficiently and to eliminate HIV efficiently enough that it should maintain permanent suppression in their body without the help of any other treatment. So we haven't proven that yet by doing the ATIs, the analytic treatment interruptions, but, you know, every step of the way, we're getting more confidence. A gargantuan uh, milestone for us was when the first three patients uh, showed no serious adverse events and the independent data safety and monitoring board agreed that it established a basis 
uh, a statistical basis for safety and that they no longer had to review safety data in between every single patient. So the assumption would be that it's probably safe uh, and we would still monitor for any sign that there was a adverse event associated with the treatment. But we, uh, instead of having to do a whole uh, data package every time we completed a patient and get approval for the next patient, we could just keep reporting to the data safety and monitoring board and they would convene once a quarter. That's a big milestone because it's your first uh, clinical endpoint, safety. And I think this gives us pretty good confidence on safety uh, at this point. Now, uh, most people are used to phase ones only being safety, but in gene and cell therapy, the FDA only allows you to conduct gene and cell therapy experiments on people that have the disease because normally gene and cell therapy are permanent modifications to the patients that cannot be reversed. So you would never want to take a healthy person and risk that they might, you might give them a permanent problem. And even the FDA is very cautious about checking the safety theoretically before they even let you start a phase one, because they know what you're going to give to the patient is probably never going to wear off. And so they don't want anybody accidentally hurt. And so there's a big, a very high bar to get an approval to start the study at all. And that was the milestone right before that safety data was that the FDA actually approved the study in August 2020, because we were able to give them sufficient data that gave them a sense that it was low enough risk for what the reward might be for the HIV population. So they had some, you know, sort of internal calculus. They don't share it with us, but they said, yeah, this, this problem's serious enough in the world. And the data that you've given us is reassuring enough that it's probably not an experiment that's going to damage anybody that we're going to let you do it. And so we sort of get, that's sort of your first safety uh, milestone. Your, your, your sort of your, uh, your, your safety um, landmark or decision uh, in the development of a gene and cell therapy. The next thing you do is you validate it in the phase one, but since everybody in the phase one has the disease, you also get efficacy information back. And safety plus efficacy gives you a very clear path to commercialization. And that's why this is a particularly exciting phase one, because in this study, we, we've already passed a statistical point where we can uh, give some confidence on safety. And we are literally just months away from testing efficacy in a way where we may be able to show that we don't just have one Berlin patient, we have a whole handful of Berlin patients. And, and that would just light the world on fire to get that data. It'll all happen in the phase one. So we're, there's a lot known about this. And when are you expecting to have the the efficacy data, and what are you using as efficacy endpoints? So uh, the endpoints are just whether we can take people off their antiretrovirals, and after probably we'll look at them and make a decision after about four weeks whether they need to go back on antiretrovirals. So the statistical you know value that we want to present to the world is the percentage of them that didn't need to go back on antiretrovirals. And that we should have by the end of next summer. 
AGT is also working in immune oncology and rare diseases. You're developing a gene therapy for the rare metabolic condition PKU, as well as immunotherapy that's designed to attack a broad range of solid tumors. Why start with HIV? Well, my idea in founding the company was that I came from the computer world, uh, computers, software, internet, IT, apps, and so forth. Uh, I had retired. I got bored, and I decided I want to dabble back in business. And as fate would have it, I met a guy named Roscoe Brady at NIH who showed me viral vectors, the idea that viruses could be hollowed out, get rid of their bad stuff, and they could be used as delivery vehicles to deliver good stuff into your DNA. And coming from the computer world, I just said, hey, wait a minute, your DNA is kind of the operating system of the human cell. Your human cell is really nothing more than an organic computer. Sure, it doesn't work in zeros and ones, but it's all programmed in ACTG. And the order of those things are like the orders of, order of zeros and ones on your cell phone or your computer or whatever. Now that we can edit your operating system, the power is just incredible. You know, this is going to usher in a whole new uh, revolution in pharmaceuticals that will be much more effective and and probably cheaper because when you look at the software industry, you get a lot of value for a very low cost because the uh, the development systems that have come out in the software world have allowed efficiencies that have never come to pharmaceuticals in, in, in the past. Uh, and so, you know, my vision wasn't to cure a disease. My vision was to create a revolution. And so we started studying these viral vectors, which to me were just diskettes for the human computer. And uh, thinking about my previous career in software, I realized, okay, the diskette is worthless without software. And software is more efficient if you have a set of tools and reusable components, sometimes called an operating system, uh, that give you some of the basic functionality, and then you can write apps on top of that. So we set to work creating that operating system. And then we just did a lot of experiments to see, okay, out of all the tools and components that we have right now, what are the diseases that are within reach? What's the low-hanging fruit where we could prove the whole idea of this revolution in medicine or this idea of this operating system for the organic computer, the human cell, uh, and show the specialness of AGT? So one of them was HIV. And we got a really interesting experimental result on a grant from NIH, an SBIR grant, uh, where we were able to show that we, were, we could protect the cells at very high levels. And this attracted the attention of the Institute of Human Virology in Baltimore. And I'll just tell you, serendipity took over from there, right? All these great people just got attracted to and associated with, and some of them jumped in, you know, with both feet, to uh, because they believe that this opened up an angle for curing HIV. Now, at the same time, we had we had done about twenty different uh, potential what are called proofs of principle. So we'd done genetic drugs that could cure a whole bunch of things, and we'd gotten some initial results in in cell models and in animal models and whatever. But it looked like the things that were uh, in the lead were phenylketonuria which is a monogenic loss of function disorder, a, a, a rare disease, but one of the larger rare diseases in the world, and then HIV and immuno-oncology. And all of these things, um, of course, have huge value, uh, but it turned out that HIV had the clearest path 
to the clinic because it was very similar to something called CAR-T. So a lot of the safety data for using T-cells, re-engineering them and putting them back in the body already existed. And so the FDA was already amenable to this type of approach for a disease, this ex vivo cell modification approach using lentiviruses. Again, it's all very technical, but the idea is, is that we saw that this would meet the least resistance and we had a tremendous amount of expertise in HIV and it just started moving the fastest out of all of them. So the answer is we didn't set out to cure anything in particular and HIV turned out to be within the scope of this platform that we had developed. Some really great people signed on to, to AGT and they ironed out all of the details. They dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's. And so it just coincidentally ended up being the first one in the clinic. But this is truly the tip of the iceberg because this doesn't just prove an HIV cure. It proves that the platform approach works and it's a more efficient way to do thousands of diseases in the future. Maybe our platform has a scope of a couple hundred diseases right now, but we keep on adding components, you know, sort of like uh, MS-DOS becoming Windows and Windows becoming Windows 8 and Windows 8 becoming Windows 10. And, you know, you just and, and eventually, you know, the iPhone being this incredibly sophisticated platform, right, that. The more we tuck into the platform, the wider the scope of the diseases that we can address with little app developments, little creative add-ons to that platform. So now maybe we can do, you know, a couple hundred diseases, but in the future, uh, there's probably eventually 10,000 diseases that will be cured in this way. And we can see quite clearly that the HIV drug is so similar to curing something like HTLV or human papillomavirus or Epstein-Barr, CMV, herpes, or, or even hepatitis B, that those are natural follow-on products that use most of the same components with tiny little tweaks to the application layer in order to solve another huge disease. So... You know, the HIV, although it is our lead program and it will be our first proof of concept, it proves much more than just a gene therapy for HIV. It proves that this platform can yield a whole bunch of really great things for healthcare, a whole bunch of highly effective pharmaceuticals that are cost effective and uh, that are practical for relieving suffering and preventing death. Earlier this year, you announced funding from Gangels, an investment syndicate that focuses on serving the LGBT plus community. How far does that funding take you and, and what are you doing in terms of raising additional funding? So, um, yeah, Gangels um, came in with a, you know, a substantial uh, investment and we, it went alongside a lot of money that we've been raising from high net worth individuals, other angel funds, small VCs and family funds. And so the company has raised about $50 million to date. We're in a round right now. We're raising another $12 million that would get us all the way through the end of next year. So that would allow us to post this data uh, and then, you know, decide what to do after that, whether it's a, an IPO or selling that asset to an interested pharma company, because you could imagine that an HIV cure would be really valuable to a Gilead or to a Vive or a Johnson & Johnson. So, you know, we're, we're pretty close uh, there. And we um, have always raised funds um, in a 
um, you know, sort of in our parallel spending of them in order to keep the dilution as low as possible for existing shareholders. So, um, you know, what's our runway? It's it's kind of unlimited because there's still, you know, uh, we keep posting more data and it's more exciting and the and the end and the goal is is more visible. So we raise the price on the stock and we raise some more money. Uh, so. You know, the Gangels uh, money and some other that we're adding to it should get us all the way out through the end of the year, which should be enough time to prove out HIV and, and think about our next move. Jeff Galvin, CEO and founder of American Gene Technologies. Jeff, thanks so much for your time today. My pleasure, Danny, and uh, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.